Hello everyone, and welcome to Mr. O's History Class. Episode 5, The Old World Meets the New World. January 1492, the Genoese sailor Christopher Columbus stands in front of the Spanish monarchs to propose a daring plan. His plan is proposing a new route to Asia. Instead of having to go all the way down around Africa, which is heavily under Portuguese control, like we talked about previously, he thinks that they can go west across the Atlantic Ocean. They know the world is round. I want to make that clear. That whole thing about that Columbus and people at that time didn't know the earth was round, that's a lie. People have known the earth was round since the ancient Greeks. His idea is an insane one for the time. Nobody's done this. They don't know how far it's going to be. But the Spanish accept the proposal and they agree to fund the expedition. And in case you guys don't know, I said Columbus is Genoese, meaning from the city-state or city of Genoa in on the Italian peninsula. Italy is not a country yet. Italy's broken up into multiple areas. Um, so he is from Genoa. Now, on August 3rd, 1492, Columbus will make his voyage that is going to change the course of human history. He even kept a journal of his travel, and right in the beginning of it, he says the following regarding his mission. Quote, based on the information that I had given your highnesses about the land of India and about a prince who is called the Great Khan of China, which in our language means King of Kings, your highnesses decided to send me to the regions of India to see the peoples and the lands and to learn of the measures which could be taken for their conversion to our holy faith. Your highnesses ordered that I shall go to the east, but not by land as is customary, I was to go by way of the West, whence until today, we do not know with certainty that anyone has gone. An important part of that is to the regions of India to see the peoples and the lands and to learn of the measures which could be taken for their conversion to our holy faith. It is very important to remember, remember, history does not happen in a vacuum. The king and queen of Spain are the same king and queen who finished off the Reconquista pushing uh, the Muslims out of Spain. They've been involved in holy war for a massive part of their lives. All right. Uh, the final crusades were going on. The idea of spreading your faith is huge at this time. This is not a, a, an odd thing um, for Columbus to also have this as part of his mission as he's traveling is spread the faith of the Spanish, which is Christianity. On the morning of August 3rd, 1492, three ships under Columbus's command, which most of you guys, I'm assuming, have heard of before. I think we had a song or something when we were little about it. But three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, will leave port in Spain and make their way into the unknown Atlantic Ocean. It's important to note here, guys. Columbus and his crew had no idea how long it's going to take to get to Asia. They didn't know if they had enough supplies to even make it or what they might run into along the way. And even when they get there, what type of dangers they might face uh, when they make landfall. It should not be understated 
and it must be understood how dangerous this was and that there's absolutely no guarantee of uh, of success. All these guys may end up just starving to death in the middle of the ocean. This is an incredibly dangerous, brave thing these guys are doing. After nine days of sailing, just open ocean, coming across the Atlantic from Spain, his crew spots land. They don't know it, but it's the modern-day Bahamas. They drop anchor, and they begin making their way to the shore. Once on the shore, Columbus is going to meet some native people who live there. Uh, They identify themselves as Taino, meaning noble or good people. Columbus, remember, who's working for the Spanish, claims the island for Spain and names the island San Salvador which today, if you look at a map of the islands in the Bahamas, San Salvador is one of the islands. Um, And San Salvador translated means holy savior. The hospitality of the Taino peoples caught Columbus off guard. In that journal I mentioned previously, he wrote, quote, they traded with us and gave us everything they had with goodwill. They took great delight in pleasing us. They are very gentle and without knowledge of what is evil nor do they murder or steal. Your Highness may believe that in all the world there can be no better people. They love their neighbors as themselves, and they have the sweetest talk in the world, and are gentle and always laughing. Columbus also wrote an assessment of the Taino a couple days later, saying, quote, It would be unnecessary to build a fort here because these peoples are so simple in deeds of arms, meaning their weapons. They don't have advanced weaponry. Uh, If your highness is ordered either to bring all of them to Castile, remember that's where in Spain, Castile is in Spain, where the king and queen are. Order either to bring all of them to Castile or to hold them as captivos, meaning prisoners or slaves, on their own island, it could be easily done. Because with about 50 men, you could control and subjugate them all, making them do whatever you want. Not all the natives were kind, though. One group in particular, the Caribs, were fierce warriors who the Taino, who were the group being friendly to Columbus, feared terribly. The Taino were, the the Caribs were the nightmare people to the Taino. The Caribs would raid, kill, kidnap, and eat other tribes. And yes, you did hear me right, they ate human beings. It was a common ritualistic practice. The Caribs would eat some of the people that they conquered. As Columbus makes his way around the islands of the Bahamas, he's going to be claiming Cuba, Hispaniola. Um, and as he's going, like as we talked about, he's trying to spread Christianity as well. Everywhere he goes, Christianity is made abundantly clear. They're setting up small little um, religious shrines. Crosses will be present. It needs to be remembered that he does promise the Spanish monarchs that he is going to assert Christian dominance everywhere he goes. Now, one of the primary reasons for the journey is to find gold. He's not going to have a lot of luck getting large quantities of gold on the Caribbean islands. There is some. They will find some, but not like they were hoping. They were expecting to get... Because you got to think, the news of the world at the time is how... The Portuguese are going around Africa and they're getting to Spain. Um, or sorry, not to Spain. They're getting to China and the East and India. And they're getting, the land is so rich and there's gold and silk and 
uh, spices and all these amazing trade goods. So Columbus and his guys are landing in the Caribbean. They think they're in India and they're not doing that well in finding the riches that they've been told exist in India. Now, he's going to head back. Columbus is going to head back to Spain January 1943. Or sorry, not 19. Oh, that'd be a, 1943 in the middle of World War II. No, not that late. Uh, January 1493, Columbus heads back to Spain. Uh, some of the Taino people actually come with him. And uh, at the time, he refers to them as Los Indios, meaning the Indians. Because he thought, like I said, that they'd landed uh, on islands just west of India. He didn't realize they discovered an entirely new world with two massive continents. Um, having the Taino people with him, as well as his reports uh, on everything they had been finding, basically made the Spanish monarchs incredibly excited. They, you got to think, they're pumping money into this expedition. They have no idea if this is even going to work. And they may have thought, Columbus might just die and we may never see this guy again. Instead, he comes back with people from this new land. And again, they don't really realize it's new land yet. They think they're in India. But the Spanish monarchs are pumped. They agree to fund three more expeditions. But now that they know they can go west to get to what they think is India, this is no longer just an exploratory mission with Columbus and three ships. Columbus will now be heading back towards the Americas with 17 ships hundreds of soldiers, five priests, and over a thousand colonists, some of whom are from the minor noble class in Spain known as Hidalgos. Columbus is no longer just an explorer at this point. He is now an empire builder for Spain. The biggest thing to take away from the list of people is the 1,000 colonists. These are people who are going to move with Columbus's fleet to set up shop in this new area, all right? It's no longer a, hey, we're coming to check things out. Spain is now coming to lay claim to the land. That's why they're sending people to live there. Those Spanish who do come with Columbus are gonna first occupy the Caribbean islands, and then, over time, most of the Americas. Their arrival on Hispaniola, the island presently divided by Haiti and the Dominican Republic, is going to begin a cultural clash that will last for the next 500 years. The European colonization of the Americas has officially begun. Now, to make sure we understand what this means, colonization is the establishment of different settlements uh, controlled by the parent country. So the parent country establishing settlements overseas usually, um, where they are going to extract the natural resources and goods from that colony to benefit the parent country. Uh, it is important to note that the natives of the Caribbean did resist the Spanish conquest. It's not like the Spanish just walked in and were like, oh yeah, we, we run things now. No, not at all. The, the, many of the natives did fight back. Um, an example, November, 1493, Columbus uh, and his crew, they try to conquer the present day island of St. Crow and the natives don't just let them walk in. The natives are going to fight back. They have poison arrows that uh, they kill some of the Spanish. They fight them with. But it's they're just not up to snuff in terms of technology with the Spanish. They're using primitive stone-tipped bows and arrows, things of that nature. They have no armor. They have no guns. They don't have horses. We're talking very, very primitive people 
running into Columbus and his troops who are wearing steel armor and have guns and steel swords. All right. It's not, it's a, a extreme mismatch between the Spanish and the natives they're running into. Uh, those natives who are resisting are going to be defeated by the Spanish. The Taino people, the people who are so friendly to, to Columbus and, and his boys when they first show up, they will be subjugated by the Spanish um, rel- relatively easily on some of the islands because the Spanish had already kind of got their uh, roots in there. So they didn't have to, you know, fight to land, basically. They just kind of show up and can set up bases. Um, but even them, even the Taino, they're going to rebel against Spanish rule multiple times. In the late 1400s into the early 1500s, they're going to fight back. When they do rebel, eventually, the Spanish are going to decide in punishing and suppressing these revolts in the most brutal ways they can. This ends with the Taino people being effectively enslaved, being forced to work in the mines, searching for gold, working on plantations that the Spanish were establishing. Uh, and then the Taino peoples, who, if they didn't perform their duties adequately, as far as the Spanish were concerned, would have their hands cut off and be left to bleed to death as example, as an example to others who may want to try to rebel or not do what the Spanish wanted them to do. On top of this, you're going to have diseases such as measles, mumps, chickenpox, smallpox, and typhus wiping out huge portions of the native population. The high estimates of the Taino population when Columbus first arrives are just under a million people. Now, taking a look at that island of Hispaniola, just that island, about one-third of the 300,000 natives who are on that island just during the time Columbus is there, one third, so 100,000 of them are going to die from disease. By 1508, fewer than 100,000 are still alive on the island. 60 years after that, only two villages are left. These diseases are going to spread from the islands to mainland America and wreak havoc on the natives, drastically reducing their populations. You need to think that with incredibly downsized societies due to disease, this is going to make the conquest of native-controlled lands that much easier for the Europeans. More surely than any army, disease conquered region after region. With native populations being decimated by disease and the Spanish still requiring a labor force for their plantations and the mines, the Spanish would begin to redirect their attention to Africa for slaves. Because remember, Portugal has already been doing this. We talked in a previous episode about how Portugal has been going down, buying African slaves and using them to man the plantations that they have. The Spanish are now going to begin doing this in, in large quantities. The Spanish believed the natives were poor slaves due to the fact that you got to think the natives know the terrain. They know the land. They know people around the area. They know other tribes. It's very easy for them to escape. And disappear. Whereas if you transport African slaves to the Caribbean, the Spanish are now going to have a slave population who doesn't know the terrain, doesn't speak the language, and will be completely dependent on their slave masters for survival. A quote from a Spanish missionary 
at the time in the Caribbean, Bartolome de, de la Casas, quote, the labor of one African is more valuable than that of four Indians. Every effort should be made to bring Africans from Guinea. Guinea is a Spanish colony in Africa. Just so you guys know, you know, what, what is Guinea? Close quote. The more natives that died of disease, the more Africans that were needed to work on the plantations. By simple supply and demand, the price of enslaved Africans skyrocketed and more Europeans would join the slave trade. The trade of African slaves would devastate many African societies as they would lose many of their fittest members. Before the slave trade would end in the 1800s, more than 12 million Africans would be taken out of Africa. With colonies being set up in the Americas, what's known as the Columbian Exchange was born. The Columbian Exchange was the introduction of new plants and animals to Europe, Africa, and the Americas. Ships took plants and animals back from the Americas to Europe and to Africa and brought goods from the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere. Um, and this system of international trade continues today between the Americas and the rest of the world. And what we mean uh, with this, guys, is natural resources, gold, uh, silver, tobacco is actually going to be one of the things that begins to come out of the Americas. Uh, our heading in sugar, sugar is a big one, but sugar, tobacco, um, gold, silver, things like that are coming from colonial America, the Spanish colonies, heading back to Europe. And then the goods that are heading towards the colonies are manufactured goods, things that they don't have in the colonies. We're talking literally pots and pans, uh, swords, weapons, um, uh, I mean, slaves is a big one. Different, and this is something that we kind of take for granted, but different types of food that aren't native. You're going to have things begin growing, things that are American plants and vegetables, um, fruits and vegetables that will now be in Europe and in Africa. And same with African and European plants, vegetables, fruits that will now be growing in the Americas because of this Colombian exchange. We also have those diseases that we mentioned. Um, a question gets asked a lot in some of my classes of, we always learn about uh, disease uh, ravaging the native populations. Were there any native diseases that hurt the, the Europe, excuse me, the Europeans as well? One that we know, because uh, it's, it's far less, there's much more of an impact of the European diseases hurting the natives. But one native disease that does make its way back to Europe is syphilis, uh, the sexually transmitted disease, um, which claims a lot of famous people throughout history, um, is something that does make its way back from the Americas into Europe. But one of the reasons, because the question gets asked, why? Why is it that disease, you know, obliterates the native population, whereas the European population doesn't really get hit that bad at all uh, from any diseases from the natives? And the reasons for this are there, there are a few of them, but they're relatively simple. The Europeans had for thousands of years at this point had domesticated animals. They had been exposed to diseases from animals for generation after generation after generation. They've lived in cities, cramped, dirty cities again, generation after generation. You got to think we're, 
a thousand, we are 1400 years where we are with Columbus here, 1400 years past Augustus Caesar. Think about that. The his the long history of city dwelling, uh, urban environments in Europe. The Europeans are used to being tightly grouped people where disease spreads quickly and and immune systems can build. And the Europeans have also been trading goods with all of Africa and with Asia again for hundreds, if not a couple thousand years at this point. All right, they have been exposed to all sorts of different diseases. Whereas the indigenous American populations have only been exposed to other indigenous American populations. Uh, and most of them are living either hunter gatherer lifestyles uh, or in comparison to the Europeans suburban lifestyle. They're not living in big urban cities the way the Europeans are. So their immune systems simply are not as strong as the Europeans are. Now, with Spain moving in and setting up these colonies and establishing control uh, over the Caribbean, Spain's on the rise. They're making money. They're spending money. They're rising up in terms of their power on the international stage. This is going to cause a problem for their neighbor, Portugal. Remember, they're right next to each other. Portugal, which we've already talked about as being a naval power, they've been expanding in Africa colonially. They're the ones that are kind of kickstart the slave trade in Africa. They're the ones going around to the tip of Southern Africa to get to India and China. They're going to view Port uh, Spain as a major threat. Competition between Portugal and Spain is going to get so intense that the Pope, the Pope of the Catholic Church, has to step in in 1493 to avoid war between the two countries. They end up agreeing on what's called the Treaty of Tordesillas. What this treaty says is they're basically going to establish a line on the globe where everything in the Western Hemisphere will belong to Spain and everything to the East will belong to the Portuguese. I mean, there's no real way to enforce this. You know what I mean? They're basically just making a treaty so they don't kill each other. But you can't say, oh, we own this. There are other countries that are going to make claims. There's no way to really enforce it. It's not going to have an impact on the English, the Dutch, or the French, who are all going to set up colonies in the Americas in the early 1600s. But what we see out of that is effectively you see Portugal, uh, they claim Brazil in South America. And the rest of South America and Central America is under Spanish claim. Now... The lasting impact, as mentioned, with Brazil being separated from Spanish South America, it's linguistic, ethnic, and in that border. Everything is Spanish. Think about it. All of South America and Central America, even today, speak Spanish. They speak Spanish. They're, they're uh, heavily ethnically Spanish. They were part of the Spanish Empire. Whereas, well, what is Portugal control? Brazil. In South America, Brazil is Portuguese. They speak Portuguese. Ethnically, it's it's heavily Portuguese mixed with, you know, the indigenous people's culture as well. Um, this is the way we see this still impacting us today. 
It's not going to have much of an impact other than that, where you see the divide between Portugal and the rest of South America. Now, back to the man at hand here. Columbus is going to live on Hispaniola, that island, until about 1500. The monarchy in Spain, they're getting really tired of Columbus because there's rebellions against Spanish rule in these colonies. Columbus is not doing a good job of maintaining order. They're going to tell him he needs to leave. Columbus says, okay, he's going to continue exploring the Caribbean uh, for a couple of years, eventually heading back to Spain in 1504. He's going to die two years after returning to Spain. Columbus is going to die living in disappointment. He never reached China. You got to remember that was the goal is get to China because that's where all the riches are, are in China. And he didn't get there. Now, nobody at the time would have been able to foresee the long chain of events stemming from Columbus's discovery of the Americas. But in time, settlers from England will transplant their cultures to colonies in North America. And from those colonies, a new society and a new nation will emerge based on ideas of representative government and religious tolerance. Spoiler alert, it's America uh, or the United States. To close this episode, let's discuss Columbus. Is Columbus a genocidal maniac who should be looked upon negatively? Or should he be viewed as a hero for connecting the world in the way we know it today? Any of you listening to this know, I'm assuming a lot of you have an opinion on Columbus. It tends to be something that can get people fired up nowadays. It is important. And I will reiterate this again and again throughout this podcast. You cannot view historical peoples through a modern lens. You cannot apply your moral standards and your modern understanding of the world to figures of the past. It is not fair to them and it is not fair to you as a student of history. If you look at the past with your modern sensibilities, every human being will be a monster. And you, you won't be able to enjoy our story as a species. It's important to understand what was considered normal for the time. Having said all that, Columbus is an integral part of American history and is the reason why the world exists the way it does today. You cannot change that, nor should you want to. We can also acknowledge that what Columbus did to the native populations in the Caribbean was monstrous. This is not an excuse for enslaving or massacring a less developed society. Columbus and his men, without a doubt, committed horrible acts of brutality and torture upon the native peoples. Keeping that in mind, it's important to recognize that this brutality was normal for the time. To give some examples, we can look at uh, other brutal uh, conflicts taking place around the world at the same time. Let's start with wars between the Ottoman Turks and the Balkan countries just north of what is today Greece. You have Vlad the Impaler, uh, which was in uh, Wallachia, modern-day Romania. Vlad the Impaler is executing Turkish soldiers by mounting them on spikes and having the spikes come out of their mouths while they are still alive, and then leaving them there to bleed to death. The Ottoman Empire, who is being you know, brutalized, having their soldiers brutalized by Vlad the Impaler, is an Islamic state, and they're very famous. A lot of people who know, have a, a decent understanding of history 
will be familiar with the Janissaries in the Ottoman military. The Janissaries were an entire slave unit. They were made up of children that the Ottomans forcibly took from Christian families in their empire. They enslaved these children, forced them to convert to Islam, and then forced them to serve in the military as slaves. And it's important to understand, this is a worldwide phenomenon. Humans do this everywhere. We can even look back at the Carib people, who from this episode, we talked about our raiding and eating the, Ta uh, the Tayano people before Columbus arrives. And another example of in the Americas, we have the Aztec Empire in modern Mexico. They're reaching the pinnacle of their power at this time. They're doing it by brutally subjugating and annihilating any smaller tribe that won't submit to them. The Aztec practiced human sacrifice to appease their gods. Their weapons were designed specifically not to kill their enemies. They wanted to maim them. That way they could bring them back to Aztec territory, where then they could sacrifice them to their gods. They're also The Aztecs are also sacrificing children. They believe the rain gods needed the tears of children in exchange for rain. The Aztec priests are going to be torturing children before killing them to make them cry and produce as many tears as possible for the gods. Now, a lot of focus there on the Aztecs at the end. It's because we will be diving into them and what's going to happen with them big time in the next episode. Because as Spain begins tightening its grip on the Caribbean, they're also going to begin moving into South America and Mexico. And Mexico is where we're going to see a very famous Spaniard, Hernan Cortez, fighting the Aztecs. As always, thank you for listening and stay curious.